Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another great season of Something to Talk About on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm Randy Wartelsky. A good education will get you ahead in life, but in order to get a good education, we need to go to good schools, which in turn require good educators. As in most industries, the business of education is in a constant state of change, constantly moving ahead, developing new strategies, working on new techniques. Sometimes the best technique is the one that's been used for decades. Hey, remember when chalkboards were replaced with whiteboards? Those were exciting times. Today, our children are using smart boards. They have homework that requires them to use the computer and classwork that uses the iPad. We are definitely in a new era of learning. How can our educators keep up? How do different schools handle challenges that come up, whether technical or otherwise? What are the issues facing educators today? How can the educational leadership in our various communities come to a consensus about how they run their schools and how they reinforce our core Jewish values? According to many, the best innovation is collaboration, and that's what two educators are working on these days, among other things, coming up with innovative ways to bring educators and those interested in education together to talk about the issues that face them and the challenges that lie in the business of shaping our future. Here to talk about how they're doing this and more, we welcome Rabbi Dr. Aaron Ross and Mr. Seth Dimbert. Seth Dimbert is the director of Educational Technology and Innovation at Yeshiva Naam, a private pre-K through 8 Jewish day school in Perems, New Jersey. He leads the school's faculty and administration in the creation and implementation of a comprehensive vision to set the standard for 21st century Jewish education through integrating secular and Judaic studies, accessibility, tradition, and innovation. And of course, he'll explain more about that a little bit later. And Rabbi Dr. Alwyn Ross is the assistant principal of the Middle School of Yavna Academy in Paramus, New Jersey. He's a driving force in helping teachers expand their use of alternative forms of assessment. He works closely with faculty to help them integrate technology into their lessons and assignments. He's also heavily involved in a great project that's going on. It's now, I understand, in its second year. So Rabbi Ross, we'll start with you. You're planning a, a get-together for educators. Tell us about it. Yes, thank you for having me, Randy. Uh, Jed Camp Brooklyn. It will be this coming Sunday, October 20th, at Mag and David Yeshiva High School. Jed Camp is what's known as an unconference. Usually, when you go to a professional conference, you show up. There's a keynote speaker, perhaps, several other sessions. You sign up for sessions that you want to l- learn from, topics you want to hear. You go to rooms, you sit, you listen, you have wisdom poured into you for, for the course of many hours. What an unconference is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's missing all the conference parts of the conference. It, I should point out that it's free, the major oh, draw. Yes. Right. And it's open to anyone involved in Jewish education on any level of Jewish education, anyone who feels they have a stake in Jewish education. And when people show up at the conference, they'll see a schedule with nothing filled in. They'll see time slots. They'll see room locations. There won't be any topics there. And it's up to the participants to put up the topics. It could be someone has a presentation that they want to share. It could be someone has a topic they want to talk about. It could be someone has something that they've been thinking about, and they're hoping that there's other people there who have also been thinking about it and are ready and willing to share their thoughts about it. And we found that when you put people who are motivated and interested together in a room and you tell them you only have 45 minutes 
to discuss what you feel is one of the most burning topics in Jewish education. What results is a very, very dynamic, a very organic, a very natural conversation, and a conversation that produces discussions that go far beyond that time slot. And the reactions we got, you mentioned this is our second year of doing this locally, um, the reactions we got from our first one back in April were one of two things. Either when's the next one going to be, or from people who somehow weren't able to make it, how come I didn't make it there? And by the way, when's the next one going to be? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're very happy that the next one, or the most immediate next one, is going to be here in Brooklyn on this coming Sunday, beginning at 9 o'clock. And we'll discuss how people can get involved a little bit later in the program. Okay, so uh, it sounds like a radical idea, Seth, the idea of an unconference. How did this idea come about? It's an interesting story. Uh, I'm not sure how radical it is, right, people getting together to talk about things, but in an organized way. Uh, the idea began several years ago, probably about 10 years ago. Um, I think it was computer programmers who had uh, the first of these, but the story is sort of lost in the in the mists of time. Uh, conference goers generally know the drill. You travel to some other city, you stay in a hotel for a day or two, you sit through a lot of sessions in, in hotel ballrooms, um, and inevitably the highlight of your day is when you bump into someone who you saw last year or you run into someone at a vendor booth on the trade show floor who you struck up a conversation with last time you were there and you remember fondly, and business cards are exchanged or phone numbers are exchanged, and you end up at dinner or at a, at a hotel bar somewhere that evening having a good time informally, having a conversation with a colleague or, or maybe someone who works at a competitor, but uh, someone who does what you do and knows the challenges of your day-to-day -day job. And those are really the highlights of those kind of conferences, the networking, those opportunities. So um, what some computer programmers uh, came up with uh, several years ago was the idea that they could do this without going to a large conference. So they would all travel, I believe, to Philadelphia and get together in a bar all night long and talk about their industry and talk about the challenges that they faced. Uh, and they didn't need to spend hundreds of dollars on a conference to make that happen. <coughs> so um, educators... And this was sort of co-sponsored by them. They, by they, each just, other. they just all traveled and got together once a year and, and had a good time, and they would bring friends, and, and the group grew. And thanks to the Internet, which is really the, the magic sauce that makes all of this work, and we could talk about that too. It has a lot to do with current innovations in educational professional development. Uh, the Internet allowed this idea to spread, and Aaron, I think you know uh, some of the organizers of the first ed camp, which happened in Philadelphia. Um, but teachers in Philadelphia got together on a Saturday in, in a middle school So ed somewhere. camp meeting educational camp. Exactly, an unconference, a, a camp, so to speak, for teachers to get together and talk about the issues that they were facing in their schools and their classrooms. So uh, if you visit, you know, if you Google the word EdCamp, there's lots of great stuff on the Internet about it, lots of here's how you can do this yourself, and we just kind of picked that up and, uh, and used that model for Jewish day schools in Florida. Now, you were living in Florida mm -hmm. at the time, and how did you start the, the first Jed Camp, Jewish love, Ed Camp in Florida? I love when people ask me that question because everyone, you know, when you run into people from other cities and they say, well, how can we do this? How did you do it? Um, you just do it. Rabbi Mayor Wexler is a colleague of mine uh, down in Florida, and he and I talked about this for over a year uh, via email, uh, in shul on Shabbos. We have to do this. We have to do this. We have to get started. And finally, he pushed and prodded enough that we just picked a date got the school I was teaching at at the time, the Sheck Hillel Community School in North Miami Beach, got them to agree to give us a room, and we just told people it was going to happen. And that's really all there is to it, right? You pick a date, you tell people where it is, and then you hope they show up. Yeah, and now, yeah, go ahead, Rabbi Ross. So I, to fill in what uh, Seth was saying, the EdCamp movement itself is really only about three years old. 
And they started in that first year, Seth said, in Philadelphia, and they picked up a few. At this point, I think they're heading into their fourth year. They're very well organized. They have a board. I was speaking to one of their uh, founders and chair people. They have a board of about 10 people. They had just had to retreat this past weekend. And they now have over 100 ed camps around the country every year. And Jed Camp, catching up quickly, there was the first one in Florida. There was our first one here in New Jersey last year. This Sunday, in addition to one in Brooklyn, there's going to be one in Chicago, mm-hmm. followed the next Sunday by one in San Francisco in the Bay Area. There's another one planned in Florida coming up in December. Mm-hmm. And looking far ahead, we have one planned back in New Jersey in May to kind of cap off a year. And there's several other communities, Jewish communities, talking about trying to get their jet camps up and running. And as Seth said, it's really as easy having a, as having a date and a place and then finding every megaphone possible to get the word out, whether it's working with contacts in every school that you know, working through various social networks where a lot of Jewish educators are active, and making sure that those people reach out to people who are not involved yet in different social networks so that they can get the word as well. Now, to be clear, just so we don't alienate half our audience who says, I'm not an educator, I don't belong there. Who are the attendees at these jet camps, and who are we encouraging to join us in the conversation? So the attendees are really anyone who has an interest in what goes on in our schools. Educators are obviously going to be the largest group, certainly at this point. Administrators, there's nobody in the building, in the building of a school, who this is not appropriate for. Mm-hmm. Teachers, administrators, support staff, specialty staff, everybody has an interest in what goes on. Parents. They obviously have an interest in what's going on in the school. People who work with education kind of from a step outside, from various organizations that are working with with education. We had people at our last JED camp from some of the various organizations that are working with schools, either just from an organization perspective, uh, organizations that provide different resources, they have an interest. And I should point out, it's a vendor-free conference as well. Mm-hmm. So we've had people who might work with companies come not to present, there is no vendor fair, mm-hmm. but to see what's going on. You know, If they want to come and see what educators are talking about, by all means, they're welcome. We had last time a couple of high school seniors came in also to start getting a sense, seniors who had a real good sense of what was going on in the school. We had students, college students, graduate students, people thinking of careers in education, you know, as their formal education is kind of coming to an end, but they're thinking about now getting back in as professionals. So for them to start becoming part of that conversation, it really is, it's open to everyone. One of the rules of JEDCAMP, and these are the rules we, we adopted from EdCamp, uh, is that in addition to it being free, it's also open. Mm-hmm. And anybody can walk in that door and join us. And as long as you're contributing to that conversation, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And we're happy to have you. Now, I'll open this question out to either one of you who, who feels they want to pitch in here. I would imagine that when you get together certain people who work in a like industry and you put them in a room together and say, talk, I would imagine that it, it would turn into somewhat of a griping session where people would just sort of complain to each other about the things that are bothering them at work or things that are bothering them with whatever it is they're working on. How do you ensure that this kind of conference doesn't become sort of a griping, complaining to each other session? It's a, it's a good question because it's something we worry about. Um, 
Aaron talked about the rules of JEDCAMP. One of the one of the rules of any of these conferences, uh, EdCamp or JEDCAMP conferences, is that participants vote with their feet. Meaning, if you're participating in a conversation that sounds interesting, uh, and it and it turns out not to be, so the rules require you to stand up and leave, go mm-hmm. somewhere else, go attend another conversation. And by making that explicit at the outset, that people are only going to participate in conversations that they think are interesting and productive and positive. Um, you can really steer the course of a conversation very quickly if someone stands up and walks out. Uh, it becomes very clear to the participants. And with 10 or 15 or 20 people sitting in a circle, it takes simply one or two of them pushing in a positive direction to really steer those conversations. It, there's, a, there's a sense in the room, an air, from the very minute the first couple of participants arrive and grab a cup of coffee and, and start looking uh, at filling in the big board. There's a very positive energy. These are people who are professionals who mm-hmm. are taking time on their Sunday, generally 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. They're away from their families. They're away from their other obligations. They're on their free time. They're not making any money. They haven't spent any money. They recognize that it's a cooperative effort to do something positive and good. And I've not seen any really negative energy in any of the conversations. So they do have to come in with a sort of honor code. Well, it's it's entirely participant-driven. So it's as good as you get from the people who participate. Yeah. So, so Rabbi Ross, I'll give you the the tougher part of the question, which is you as an administrator obviously work with parents daily, work with teachers daily. And the collaboration, the positive collaboration between parents, teachers, and administrators – is a, a driving force in, in a child's education. And when you get parents together with educators, there's bound to be some sort of push push and pull when you put them together in one room. Have you not experienced that at any of these conferences? So I haven't seen that yet, but I think the potential for it is certainly there. But picking up on what Seth said, let's note that the context is important. First of all, you have a self-selected group. You have people who are giving up their time. Right. Sometimes it means they're giving up their opportunity to spend the day carpooling. Mm -hmm. But in one way or another, people are giving up, whether they come for half a day or for the whole day. They're giving up their time. They know what type of a conference they're going into. It's also the tension is kind of a step removed. Normally when we're concerned with potential tensions that come up when you have teachers, parents, administrators working together, that's usually focused around a specific instance when we're dealing with a specific child and everybody wants what's best for the child, but we have to negotiate to make sure that every every constituency is is getting what they want, is feeling that they're being fulfilled. Right. Here we're taking a couple steps back. We're talking in a broader sense. We're not talking about my child or my kid's school. We're talking about education in general. So there, everybody can raise themselves up a little bit to that more theoretical perspective sometimes while still thinking about their particular situations because that's, of course, that's what we know best. That's where most of our information comes from, comes from the schools that we work with or that we send our children to and that we're involved with every day. But now we could talk about, you know, here's the type of experience I might have been having in school. I've always wondered about this. It may be something that a parent can't always express in a meeting with a teacher or in a meeting with an administrator, but thoughts that they've had. And that's, again, the the situation, I think, has everyone realize what we're here to do, what we're here to talk about. And it's really all about we want to put our best foot forward. We want to kind of leave that complaining side of things, right. even though that might be what's driving the thoughts a little bit. Obviously, I want to make things better because I'm not totally happy with something now, or I'm more or less happy, but I can see how we can be doing more. Let's talk about it. In addition, if you're in that room, you're not in the room with your administrator. Right. You're in a room with a representative. I'm thinking we had one session at our last JED camp, which probably got almost a third of the participants into there. 
and I don't remember the exact topic, but you probably had 20 different constituencies represented. You had parents, you had administrators, you had teachers, you had people from outside organizations, all in there, a topic that was really driving people forward. And as much as everybody had their own experiences, they were really discussing it at a higher plane and really looking at what are the issues we're dealing with, what are possible solutions, or at least what are pathways to a solution that we could be thinking about. Right. What are what are some of the topics that have come up at the various JET camps? Uh, I was just thinking about it while uh, Aaron was talking. I sat in on a conversation um, at the last JED camp in New Jersey uh, that was really dynamic and exciting. Um, someone posted the question, and literally, I don't know who it was, just wrote the question on a piece of paper, stuck it on the board. If you could build a Jewish day school from scratch, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. And they put that up on the board, and I remember we all got in the room, and we didn't even really know who would ask the question. Someone said, well, I'll start, and they started to talk. Um, seeing that um, dynamic from the flip side, I posted the discussion topic, how to make tefillah meaningful for middle and high school students. Mm-hmm. And I posted that up on the board and got a large group of uh, everyone from from first-year teachers to heads of school um, from, from various schools in the area. And um, one of the heads of school in the room knew that I had posted the question, so he said, well, Seth, why don't you get us started? And I said, it's not like I have an answer to the question, right? <laughs> right. Here's some of the frustrations I have. And we went around the circle and really accomplished almost nothing more than just a sharing of this is what frustrates us, this is what frustrates us, this is what frustrates us about running tefillah in our schools. But as we went around the circle, we found those common areas of frustration, and we began to say, oh, yeah, we tried that also, and that didn't work for us, and we tried that, but it worked out a little bit differently. And uh, it, it really created a positive sense of community and a, a sense of a shared struggle uh, in, that, in, the, in that particular issue. And one thing I should point out, if you notice the couple topics that Seth mentioned, Neither one of them had anything to do with technology. Mm-hmm. One of the questions we get very often is, is this a technology conference? Right. Why? Because, as we've mentioned before, a lot of the publicity starts off through a lot of online networks. Twitter has been a very powerful network for a lot of educators and a lot of Jewish educators, and it's been a major way a lot of us met each other in the first place. That's how Seth and I first connected with each other. And since it's coming through there, so people who perhaps are not as technologically savvy or social media savvy say, are you just going to sit around and talk about Twitter and Facebook and smartboards all day? And the fact is, no. There will certainly be technology-oriented sessions, but there's just as likely to be plenty of sessions that are not. Another session we had in New Jersey was one about using humor in the classroom. As far as I know, humor has existed well, (laughs) well, well before microchips were even thought of. Uh, And it had a very strong core of people who went, and it was a very enlightening session for the people who were there. So the types of topics are really up to the people who show up and what they want to hear. If everyone shows up ready to talk technology and that's all they want to do, that's what we'll have. If everyone shows up as a total technophobe, we're not going to touch it. And chances are what we're really going to have is a very healthy mix of topics. Right. We are talking with Rabbi Dr. Aaron Ross and Mr. Seth Dimbert about this uh, innovative collaboration called JetCamp. We're going to have more of our discussion about JetCamp, including some of the great topics that they've discussed at JetCamp when we come back with more of something to talk about right after this.
Lovely new selection by Ari Goldwag. Welcome back to Something to Talk About here on the Nachum Siegel Network. By the way, if you have any questions or comments about today's program, you can email me, randy at nachumsiegel.com. That's R-A-N-D-I at nachumsiegel.com. I always love to hear from you. 
And um, as I said earlier, I am Randy Wartelski, and today we're talking about how educators and those interested in education get together to discuss topics interest to them in education. We are joined today by Rabbi Dr. Aaron Ross, who's the assistant principal in the Middle School of Yavna Academy in Paramus, New Jersey. And he's very in, involved in helping teachers expand their use of alternative forms of assessment and works closely with faculty to help them integrate technology into their lessons and assignments, which we'll talk about a little bit later this hour. And we are also joined by Seth Dimbert, who's the head of educational technology and innovation at Yeshiva in Paramus, New Jersey. He leads the school's faculty in creating and implementing comprehensive visions, setting the standard for 21st century Jewish education, integrating secular and Judaic studies, accessibility, tradition, and innovation. So, uh, Rabbi Ross, we were talking earlier before the break about various topics that come up at these JED camps. And I was wondering, are there any topics that you have to censor? So we have not had any issues with topics that need to be censored or curtailed in any way. Uh, sometimes we have the opposite effect where we'll look at the board as people are signing up and notice there are a few topics that perhaps might work very well if we combine them. Mm-hmm. And when I say we, sometimes that's the organizer. Sometimes someone's looking to put a session up and they see someone else who they might not even know yet has put a session up that sounds similar, sounds related, and they'll go find them and they'll say, you know what, I know there's a lot of clamoring to get a space on the board to be able to give a session, why don't we just help each other? We'll co-run this session. And we've seen sessions that people have gone in together without knowing each other, spent about five minutes beforehand just talking about what each one's angle on it had been, what each one had thought about presenting or facilitating, and they wind up co-facilitating a session. And that winds up right off the bat, you have this wonderful collaboration, and that brings a certain energy into it that then spreads to everybody else who is there. So. Right. The answer to the actual question is no. We have not yet had any issues with having we're to. We're going to keep our fingers crossed about the one uh, yes, coming will. up this Sunday. Um, Seth, are the educational issues different? Because you've attended a conference in Florida and attended conferences in the in the on the East Coast up north here, where we are in New York, New Jersey area. Ha, are the issues facing educators and those interested in education different in the various communities across the United States? Uh, I think to some extent, yes, they'd have to be. Um, I was thinking about this uh, during the musical break. Down in South Florida, we had a larger contingency of uh, non-day school educators. Um, Florida, the South Florida Jewish community is enormous, but it's a small Jewish community compared to the tri-state area up here. So we were really excited. It was the first JED camp. Uh, we had no idea how many people we were going to get to attend, and uh, we decided that if we had six people attending, mm-hmm. right, that was enough to have a conversation. We'd call that a right. win, and we opened it up for registration, and we watched the numbers come up, and we ended up with 20 people pre-registered, so we were doing cartwheels, and then 40 people showed up the day of the event. Wow. Um, so we had a nice big group, but um, all those people, right, there were a lot of Sunday school teachers, a lot of supplementary Jewish educators, a lot of people from the Central Agency of Jewish Education, a lot of uh, synagogue youth programming directors, those sorts of people. So there were a lot of, a, a much broader group of constituencies there, and so the conversations necessarily were different than up here uh, last year at Jed Camp, New York, New Jersey, where um, it, there was a lot of common commonality uh, between so the So do you think that the, the group in New York, New Jersey was more homogeneous, would you say? It was definitely more homogeneous. It was definitely weighted towards that homogeneity at a very strong showing from a lot of the day schools. And again, there's obviously differences between everybody, even within the day school world, and bring their own experiences within their schools, lower school, middle school, high school. Um, So you did have that that weight, 
Uh, but we still managed to have a lot of people coming from a lot of the other constituencies that Seth had mentioned, just not with the same more even distribution that you might have had down in Florida or that we're expecting to see uh, in about a week and a half from now that they're going to have out in San Francisco, where it's mostly supplementary education, um, people working in agencies, people working in boards of Jewish education, and the like. Right. Uh, Seth, you mentioned earlier one specific topic that piqued my interest. You talked about tefillah. And I'm wondering among the people that attended this session, so you said there were a lot of questions raised. Did people walk away feeling content with a solution, or do you think that they just walked away thinking about the topic with more questions? Well, I think um, if we had walked away with a solution, then certainly by now people would know about it. right? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, tefillah in Jewish day schools is a challenge um, pretty much across the board. Finding a way to make um, tefillah meaningful for middle school and high schoolers is something which is challenging. Many Jewish educators have shared with me that finding a way to make tefillah meaningful for themselves every single day is challenging. So um, that's uh, an educational challenge that's common to most of us. Um, we certainly didn't come up with a plan that this is what we're going to do and it's going to work and, and, and now we, we've got the problem solved. But we did leave, um, most importantly, with a shared sense of purpose, that the conversation had identified what the issues are, what the challenges are, and how they're common to all of us. And the, the key idea was we had made connections between each other that we had created a, a network uh, in, in the jargon, a personal learning network, right? a PLN of people who think like we do, who have the same problems we do, and now we have Twitter hashtag handle usernames and email addresses and cell phone numbers, and we're going to meet three weeks from today on a Tuesday for coffee, and we're going to continue the conversation. And those connections were built at JetCamp and have continued, and, and those networks have grown. And specifically with regard to a topic like tefillah, which has very different manifestations in different branches within Judaism. Uh, that conversation and many, probably many other conversations among the various j- religious topics that come up, how do people talk about those things without feeling competitive and without sort of defending you know, their perspective or their branch of Judaism when they get together with so many different types of Jews? So I think to stay on the topic of tefillah, and that's obviously a, a hot topic and has always been one, and as, as I'll often tell my teachers, of all the topics that we teach in school, tefillah might be the one that we really have the greatest stake in because we don't know which subject any of our kids are going to really latch on to, which one is going to say, I'm going to make Gemara a major part of my life from here and forever, which one is going to latch on to math or onto science. But the morning after they leave school, we hope that they're davening, right. and we hope they're doing that every single day. So there's obviously a lot at stake in tefillah. To the extent that anyone takes tefillah seriously, whatever that tefillah looks like, whichever words you're focusing on or saying, there's a lot of commonality there. And within a school context, the different approaches that different, that different educators take, no matter what branch of Judaism they're com- coming from, everyone's trying to create some sort of a meaningful, religious, spiritual moment in that day for their students. And... There's a lot that we all can learn from each other, whether it's, you know, tefillah is something that we're hoping that our students are going to do three times a day, every day, and, you know, follow, you know, an art scroll or a Koran Sidur, or they're going to follow a Sim Shalom Sidur or something, something else. That idea of what tefillah is and what tefillah represents, I think that's fairly common. And therefore, the challenges are similar to get students to stand still, sit still, be relatively quiet, think about meanings of words, 
how are we going to do that? Are we going to run a standard minion? Are we going to have something explanatory? Are we going to offer a whole range of options for what students can do on any given day? Are we going to try to shorten things? Are we going to try to lengthen things? Are we going to try to sing? Are we going to forget about the singing? Those questions everyone's dealing with. Right. So everybody has to come, like we said earlier, to each specific topic with a sense of mutual respect for each other. And ultimately, if we're coming together like that with a sense of mutual respect for each other in this kind of conference, we would hope to expand that to our students. Definitely. Yeah. Um, has anybody brought up the word tuition at any of these uh, conferences, unconferences? Um, I know that's a hot topic that parents like to talk about a lot. You know, I think uh, I'm going to say uh, uh, no. I don't, I don't think that I've seen that on the big board at any conference, and I didn't really even think about it uh, until you asked the question. So now I'm racking my brain trying to picture the big boards in my mind, and I don't think that it has come up. I, I, no. So the, these conferences are, are more intellectually based. Are they think tanks? Uh, I don't know that I would label it just because uh, they feel they feel very practical. Mm -hmm. um, these are teachers who very much uh, are walking in ready to roll up their sleeves and do some learning. And it's a, you, you, just, you just said something a moment ago about uh, sharing the spirit of collaboration that these teachers are feeling with their students. And I think that that's uh, one of the reasons why JetCamp is so exciting. It's that um, students need to know that their teachers are learners also. Right. And teachers really do every day look for ways to improve their craft, look for a better idea, look for a faster, easier, more efficient way to connect with their students, uh, to connect their students to the material, to create a love of learning in their classroom. And that's teachers of tefillah, teachers of Tanakh, teachers of math, teachers of all subjects. So when a teacher, in my experience, is given the opportunity to go somewhere without very many obstacles and find like-minded people who are looking to talk about the craft of the science and the art of teaching, they jump at the opportunity, and that's the uh, the excitement and the interest that we're seeing in these programs. And I bet when 45 minutes is over, people still want to hang around and keep talking. That's the <laughs> chief complaint is we wish there was another another session slot. We wish the sessions were longer. It's the, the biggest challenge that uh, Rabbi Ross and I have both had as organizers of these events is getting into some of those rooms and saying, look, guys, you have to stop talking about yeah. this now. There's another session that's supposed to start. Right. Rabbi Ross, how can people find out about these conferences? Okay. So for our upcoming JED camp in Brooklyn this Sunday, and it is not too late to sign up, and even if you don't pre-register, you can still walk in to Mag and David Yeshiva High School at 9 o'clock this Sunday morning, October 20th. But if you do want to pre-register, you can go online to JEDCampBrooklyn, it's all one word, dot eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, dot com, and that will allow you to sign up instantly to get a ticket, print out a ticket. You could also go to jedcamp.org, which will have a link to the Brooklyn event as well as other events taking place. There's one this Sunday in Chicago as well for any of our Midwest listeners. As I mentioned, there's one Sunday the 27th out in San Francisco in the Bay Area, hopefully one coming up in December in Florida, end of the year towards May, which we'll talk about more later in the year. Uh, that will be back in New Jersey. And as they come up, jedcamp.org is really our central hub for that as mm -hmm. well. A lot of them, we try to place them on the main EdCamp calendar as well. Uh, and if you just search EdCamp, that will take you to their page 
and they have a full schedule of every single EdCamp taking place, and just look for the ones labeled where it says JedCamp instead of EdCamp, and that will take you to a link usually to the individual page for that specific event. Now, we discussed through the, through the break that it would be virtually impossible for somebody to Skype in to all these various discussions, but is there a way that they could follow the conversation if they can't attend the conference, unconference? Uh, in fact, there is. So one of the things that we've been working on, and I've actually seen it at uh, – at an ed camp that I attended over the summer is that as the big board, everyone signs up. So what we're planning for future jet camps is to put our schedule for the day online on a Google doc, which therefore any of the participants, if they're in a room, Seth spoke about voting with your feet. Well, let's say you want to leave a session and you want to know where to go. So if you have a device with you, you can check and see what the other sessions are going on at that time. And what we're planning on doing is putting a little link in the schedule to an open Google Doc. A Google Doc, of course, is a collaborative document. We're going to leave it open so anyone can contribute. And we're going to encourage participants in the sessions to use that document to take notes. Now, if you are not at the conference but you want to at least see what's going on, it would be very hard, obviously, to be part of the session. It uh, be hard for anyone, any one person to Skype in. But you can at least follow the notes that are going on. That's very clever. In addition, uh, for those who are on Twitter and we encourage everyone to be. Um, Twitter scares me. <laughs> don't be scared. Uh, the JedCamp hashtag, uh, and probably for this Sunday, uh, it will either be just JedCamp or JedCamp Brooklyn. If you follow just JedCamp, we will put up if it's more specific uh, for this Sunday. Um, but if you follow that hashtag, there are many people who will be attending who are Twitter savvy, who will be tweeting throughout the day from cool. the sessions that they are in, and you'll be able to follow the conversations. I have and. I'm sure Seth and several others have had, have had moments where there's been a conference going on that for one reason or another we have not been able to be there. But you have a bit of a break in your day, you follow that tag, and all of a sudden you jump in the conversation and people are saying, hey, you want to go meet during the break? And you go, actually, I'm, I'm halfway across the country. I'm not there right now, but thank you for involving me in the conversation that's, that's going great. on where you are. And that is something we certainly uh, believe strongly in doing at Jet Camps. Now, you had also mentioned when we spoke a long time ago earlier about this b before the show that the conversation continues even after the conference on a blog or on a – how, how did that conversation continue? Okay, so the conversation can continue in a lot of ways, and this goes back to the idea of the various social networks that are out there. In addition to the way – people are accustomed to continuing conversation, whether by phone or by email or you didn't realize that the person who lives three doors down from you is interested in this and they happen to show up at the conference. Um, Twitter is one very powerful uh, tool. A lot, it gets a lot of a bad name because of uh, a lot of celebrities who use Twitter to let everybody know what they're eating for lunch. But educators <laughs> have seized on it as a very, very powerful and effective way of communicating. And I mentioned uh, the uh, Jed Camp hashtag. There's something called Jed Chat also, uh, which again we're just stealing from the general world of education. That the chat itself, once a week, uh, there's an hour Wednesday nights 9 p.m. East Coast time, where every week there's a question kind of posed to anybody who might be passing through. And again, anybody can take part in this. This is no such nothing is closed on Twitter, and. The co a conversation takes place, meaning for that hour, as long as you just end your, your post, you end your tweet with hashtag JedChat, and you respond to anyone else who's there about that one topic. With a JedCamp spilling over, sometimes a topic that comes up in JedCamp will become a future topic for JedChat. There are other social networks 
uh, out there uh, that have uh, sprung up over the past couple of years. There's a Facebook group called Jed Lab, which was started really just a few months ago, uh, including by uh, Tikva Wiener, a teacher at Frisch, a Teaneck resident, uh, has been one of the driving forces behind it. I think it just crossed 1,800 members. Wow. And that people will post a topic, people will post a document, and generate some discussion around it. Uh, what seems ancient at this point, uh, there's an email listserv. Those terms yeah, sound like they're from right. a different era, uh, but still going strong. Uh, this is probably one of the first JEDs uh, called Look JED, right. run out of the Lookstein Center for Jewish Education uh, in Barilan University in Israel. Uh, it's moderated by Rabbi Shalom Berger in, in Israel, but it's, it's aimed at education primarily outside of Israel. That has thousands of people who will post. A digest will go out every few days. A lot of discussions take place on the list. A lot of discussions get generated off the list between right. people. Um, Yeshiva University has a couple of networks that they have started, one called YU 2.0, run by uh, Shira Leibowitz, who's the principal of Solomon Schechter now in Queens, one called YUHS High School Chinuch, uh, run by Rabbi Yehuda Channelis of Torah Academy in Bergen County. And those are closed groups which you just have to sign up to be a part of, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of activity that goes on there, a lot of discussions, a lot of blog posts, people share files. So all so sorts really of no ways. excuse at all for anyone who's interested in Jewish education not to have their opinions heard and not to have their ideas shared. If I could use a big scary word for a second. Um, not Twitter. Not Twitter. <laughs> another big scary word. Um, what the Internet allows us to do, what makes the Internet so powerful, um, is that it, it, it disintermediates. Right? It cuts out the middleman. Mm-hmm. It connects people uh, in ways that before it didn't simply didn't exist so it allows for easy communication it lowers barriers barriers of entry it allows connections to be created and to exist between people who otherwise would never know that each other existed so uh, as rabbi ross mentioned he and i met each other online first there's literally dozens of people who work in my industry who are competent professional experts in the field who i've never met face to face yet i communicate with regularly whether it's via email or via twitter or via video chats on on skype or on on google Uh, these are people who i look to first to answer the most difficult questions that I encounter day to day in what I do for a living. And those are people who I, I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting, but uh, we've created these friendships online. So the Internet gets the middleman out of the way. We don't have to pay to go to a big national right. conference. We don't have to travel great distances. We don't even have to know uh, each other's real name at first. But because we have this common interest and the technology online allows us to connect through that common interest, in this case Jewish education, um, the connections can spring up in very exciting ways. That's really, that's really amazing. And speaking of the Internet, uh, we're going to take a short break. And after the break, since we have these two great people, these two great educators here in front of us who are very involved in technology, they're going to tell us about some of the great things that they're doing in the technical world in their own schools and uh, give us some great ideas about technical things that we should be involved in. And uh, we'll take a short break and be back uh, with more of something to talk about right after this. <laughs> Did it out of the 
Welcome back to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and we are sitting here with two great educators in, from the New Jersey area who are very involved in technology at their various schools. So Seth Dimbert is the head of educational technology and innovation at Yeshiva Noam. And um, we'll start with you, Seth. I'd like to know what your vision is when you approach educational technology. What does that mean? Um, well, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Okay. Uh, don't tell anybody. And all our listeners. <laughs> oh, there, there are people listening, right. Uh, what I try to bring to the table is an awareness. Um, first of all, I should say um, that I'm really excited about what we're doing at Noam. Um, the, the team there is fantastic, and uh, they are excited about working with technology. They are, in many ways, masterful already. We have a lot of really strong uh, teachers on the faculty. It's just a fantastic, exciting place to work, a new challenge every day, uh, and a really positive um, team there to take part with. Um, Rabbi Hagler is a wonderful person to work with, and I'm the luckiest guy in the world uh, that I got to be there. So um, the secret that I spoke about a moment before is just um, the technology is like a Trojan horse um, in my mind. Technology is the tool that we use to get into the classroom and bring in the real secret, which is simply good teaching, good learning, good pedagogy, uh, good instructional craft. Um, that's both as I introduce technology to teachers, and that's as teachers use technology in the classroom. In both cases, technology is the common language. It's where our students are. It's what our students do. Um, I have uh, I have five children. My oldest is in 11th grade, and my youngest is in kindergarten. And my youngest child um, will probably not ever in his lifetime spend any time operating a device with a mouse or a keyboard. Hmm. He's already there. Um, he was born seemingly learning, how, uh, knowing how to use these devices. I didn't teach him. And uh, he's never going to sit for any length of time at a laptop computer or at a desktop computer with a mouse and a keyboard. Whatever that interface is, uh, it's going to be different for him than it is for me and uh, certainly than it is uh, for the rest of us, even for my other children. And that's simply speaking about the interface, right? What he uses that machine to do, what the machine looks like, the processes and tasks that he's going to use it to do in his professional life as an adult. We can't even begin to think about what that's going to look like yet. Um, so that's the language he speaks. So technology is the language our teachers have to learn how to speak because that's the language that the children know how to speak and, and are looking to hear and can most easily understand. But what the substance of our conversation, once we start to speak with, our ch with, the, with the students, uh, has to be 
what it always has been. It's the it's the gold of our curriculum. It's the Torah we teach. It's the secular knowledge that we teach. It's the substance of our curriculum. So technology is the language of the Trojan horse that we use to sneak into the classroom. But the pedagogy, the teaching techniques, they're hundreds of years old, if not older. In a formal sense, they're hundreds of years old. They're student-centered learning. They're active learning. They're teaching our students how to do things that are valuable. They're teaching our students how to be independent thinkers and problem solvers and independent learners. Those are the skills that we try to teach our students to do. And technology is the language that we use. Is that what we're calling 21st century learning? I'm glad you used the buzzword before <laughs> I did, yes. That, that is what we call 21st century learning. It's te- you know, I, I'm fond of telling my faculty uh, at NOAM that there's really only one 21st century skill, and that skill is the ability to learn independently. Um, I heard someone at a conference once talking, and he talked about how he traveled to Hawaii, and his teenage daughter bothered him and bothered him and bothered him in advance of their, of their vacation because she wanted a ukulele. So he said he learned two things. Number one, don't buy your daughter the ukulele on the first day of the trip to Hawaii <laughs> because it's really maddening the entire time. Wait until the last day. And the second thing was they walked into the music store and he bought her the ukulele. And he said, well, here's a book with a CD. Why don't we buy this book so that you can learn how to play it? And she looked at him like he was nuts. And he thought she was crazy. And that evening in their hotel room, she was on YouTube and she was playing her ukulele because wow. she yeah. was a teenager and they don't learn things from how-to books. Right. They go and they learn these things other ways. So she spoke that language, right? She spoke that language of technology, and that's really our students think about these things differently. The tools that they have at their disposal are different, and we have to we have to learn to adopt those tools to reach them. Wow. Rabbi Ross, how do you integrate technology in your school, and how do you work with your faculty? Okay, so a lot is going to be similar from what Seth already said uh, because something that is not a buzzword, a buzz sentence every time educators get together to talk about technology is that it's not about the technology, the idea of technology as a tool. Uh, and at Yavna, we're very fortunate. Um, Mrs. Hani Lichtiger, our director of technology, and her entire team have done a phenomenal job of working with our entire faculty from early childhood all the way through the middle school to provide both physical resources, you know, tools that, that, we, that we need, as well as the human resources, as well as the assistants to help uh, guide the teachers. Um, and one of the things that uh, we really see uh, as, as we work through the teachers is that, as Seth said, teaching is still teaching. One of the things technology allows us to do, sometimes to enhance a little bit, sometimes to serve as a common language, and sometimes to allow us to do things that we might not have been able to do before. In some ways, it's a quantitative change. Okay, maybe before the material was in a book, and now the material might be online. It might be on the iPad the child has. But at some point, there's so much of that quantitative change that it allows us to make more of a qualitative change. Uh, when we start talking about some different approaches to teaching that maybe we didn't do before, uh, Seth mentioned the phrase student-centered. So just to give a little definition, non-student-centered is a traditional frontal teaching lecture teacher at the front of the room, maybe interacting with the students, but really everything is coming from the teacher. We talk about a student-centered classroom, um, something such as project-based learning, which really presents the students with a unit and an idea and a, a driving question, and then they have to work their way through the unit, work their way through the material. And it doesn't just mean read a chapter. It means go out and find material. Now, once upon a time, that was hard to do. It meant the students had to... You, the school had to have a vast library. Students had to have constant library time. That might be the type of learning you, you, would, you would have done in college when you were doing a research paper. But our students, middle school, even high school level, didn't always have that kind of time and access during the school day. But now with the resources of the Internet, 
and property, properly filtered and properly guided by the teachers. We don't just let students run loose. It's still a, a learning opportunity and a teaching opportunity, but the fact that we can bring so much to our students and put before them certain resources and say, okay, here's what you have to, here's what you're working on, here's what you're trying to understand, here are X number of resources, more than you ever would have been able to bring into a frontal class. Give students the opportunity to choose which resources they're going to use. Not every product has to look the same. We're all going to learn about the same topic, but we know that there's many ways you can learn about it, many aspects of it you can learn about, and let the students find their corner of it where they're going to feel most comfortable. Let them learn how to work through material. Let them work in groups, learn how to collaborate, learn how to divide up um, assignments and responsibilities. And Is it not challenging as a teacher to deal with this change? I mean, you have to be like one step ahead from a technological perspective. You have to be one step ahead from an educational perspective. You have to be one step ahead from a curriculum perspective. I imagine it must be very difficult for teachers to keep on top of this trend. Um, it 100% is. Um, and again, keeping on the theme of uh, a project-based learning or a blended learning class, a lot of people think you look in there and you see a lot of students on screens and a teacher moving around. You say, wow, it's easier to teach that class. It's exactly the opposite. It's actually harder to teach that class. Right. First of all, there's so much more pre-work because now you have to really anticipate all the different ways a lot of the students can go. And it doesn't mean you'll figure out everything before day one of the unit. Some of it you'll do as you go along. But you have to put, make a lot available for students. You have to structure the learning very well, let them know what their intermediary, intermediate goals are. It's not just, here's a unit, I'll see you in three weeks. You're constantly on your feet. You're constantly busy, constantly looking at what the students are doing, looking at their work, working with them individually, but as opposed to teaching them. And then maybe at the end of a unit, when you see a test, you understand how well they've been learning it. You're on right. top of every student's learning every day. I think also one of the challenges that many teachers probably face is trying to be more exciting than what they're looking at on the screen, meaning like you have to be more exciting than all of the screen time combined. That's certainly true. Um, you know, you, you read articles in, in, in Time magazine about the MTV generation, about how our, our children are saturated by media. But um, a mentor of mine once remarked, it was an off-the-cuff thing, and it's really shaped a lot of the way that I think about teaching. He said, you know, if you want your students to be interested in, and engaged, you have to design a class that's interesting and engaging. Right. And it really is oftentimes that simple. That they're really, for a child, this is true I think for everyone, but certainly for children in school, there's nothing more exciting than learning. Mm -hmm. Every child comes to school every day wanting to They don't learn. always know it. Well, <laughs> they don't always know it or they don't always want to learn what we want them to learn right now. So the challenge of every, you know, you ask teachers, what is it that you do for a living? And when you get past the easy answers like I teach math or I uh, teach students to love learning or I impart uh, critical information for children's development, really what they are is they're motivators, mm -hmm. they're coaches. A, a classroom teacher's job is to create a connection in a student's mind between something they care about and something important in the world that they can learn more about. And if you're a math teacher, then that's related to a math curriculum. If you're a science teacher, it's related to science. This isn't a new idea, right? When we think about the, the, the centuries-old tradition of Limud Torah, when we think about the people we revere, right, the masters in Jewish thought, these are people who can take centuries-old texts 
and create a connection between that learning and the modern world. These are people to whom we go for, for spiritual guidance, for halachic guidance, for guidance about how to raise our families. And they look at a Gemara that's about Ox A and Reuven and Shimon and, and something, a world that doesn't exist any longer, and they can create a connection between those ideas and what happens when you rear-end somebody on Cedar Lane. They, right, because one ox and another, we don't have oxen, we have something else now. And that idea, that uh, that oral Torah, right, that idea of creating that connection between that which is important and the life we live now, that concept hasn't changed. That's the stuff of teaching. What's the single most important thing you try to impart to teachers in this 21st century learning? Uh, for me, uh, the, uh, the one thing I try to teach teachers to do the most is to step back and get out of the way. Uh, I teach one class. I'm lucky enough to, to have one uh, class of technology I teach to eighth graders at NOAM. I, I see them once a week, um, four sections of students. It's not enough time, but it's it's what we were able to carve out of my schedule and, and the time that the students have. And I introduce the course to them by explaining I'm going to be the least helpful teacher they've ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to try as hard as I can to answer absolutely no questions. I'm, my job is to present problems, and their job is to solve them. And they say things like, is this right? And I frustrate them. I answer them by saying, I don't know. Does it look right to you? How could you discover if it's right? Have you tried the solution? Have you tested it? Have you spoken to somebody else? I don't know if it's right. Right? You figure it out. And that's terribly frustrating for students for two reasons. Number one, because it's frustrating. Number two, because unfortunately that's not the way other classes that they've had in school tend right. to work. Right. They hand the work to a teacher, the teacher evaluates it, they get it back with a grade, they know if they did a good job or not. Judging yourself is difficult for a host of reasons. We all know that. It's why people don't like to look in the mirror all the time. So that's a challenging uh, that's a challenging way to learn. But what we know now about brain-based science, about neurology, that's the way we learn. One of the books uh, that I'll throw out there, if your listeners are interested in reading about this idea, the book The Talent Code by David Coyle is one of the five most important books I've ever read. I try to return to it at least once a year. And he talks in the book about the neurological, biological things which occur when we learn. And we learn best through failure. Uh, the educational buzz term is failing forward. Trying and failing, trying again and failing, trying again and failing, and then trying and succeeding. That's how we literally build the pathways in our brain chemically and physically that maintain the patterns that are of neurons that fire when we learn to do something. So if you want to learn how to hit a golf ball, you have to do it badly a whole bunch of mm-hmm. times before you can learn to do it well. And the same is true of multiplication or of solving creative problems or anything else that we learn how to do. We learn best by failing. But you got to push yourself to keep trying. You need a teacher who can motivate you and teach you to learn from failure. Yeah. Rabbi Ross, some, some last words to share with us? Okay. I think to answer the same thing in terms of what's most important, something that kind of was underlying a lot of what uh, Mr. Dimbert was saying, is that really one of the key things, if not the key thing that we have in education, are the are the connections that we make with, with the students. And that really allows the learning to happen. And you, you see it all the time. You have teachers who drive their students and frustrate their students and they're, they quote unquote get away with it. The students are happy to come to class every day. The parents are never calling up and complaining. And why is that? Because the teacher has established an atmosphere in the room where it's understood what we're doing. We're here collaboratively. I'm not here to get you. I'm not here to, you know, you're trying to get an A and not my job is to stand in the way of that. No, not at all. Forget about the A or the B or whatever the grade might be. We're here to learn. And I'm here to help you learn. Wow. And students will understand that if there's a 
Rough assignment, rough meaning it makes us think. If the teacher is not answering our questions right away because he or she is sending us back to think about it more or to find someone to help us with it, right? that's because they're trying to develop certain skills, certain abilities in each one of us, each one of the students. Um, and once the teacher has established that and the students understand it, anything can happen in that class. Yeah, so um, true. And it really creates a, a magical environment. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us in this amazing conversation today. Uh, we encourage everybody to join in the conversation as well by going to jedcamp.org and joining a JEDCamp and getting onto Twitter and all the various uh, technological things that our guests mentioned earlier. We hope that today we've given you something to talk about right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Coming up next, it's Listen Up with Rabbi Chaim Hagler. It promises to be a great show. Let's give them something.